He says in verse 1, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey, and I have drunk my wine with my milk. And he says to his friends, Eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. The Shulamite says, this is the woman, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love. My dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the hands of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. So as we've been reading through chapters 1 through 4, one of the things that kind of dawned on me was how, like, in a sense, perfect their relationship was. I don't know if you got that sense, too. They've done everything really well. Solomon has, like, set this standard for men to be this gentleman and to be so selfless and so intentional with this woman that it feels unattainable as a guy, and probably the same for the woman. And that relationship that they've developed, as we see through chapters 1 through 4, it's just been so good. Like, you see no fault. You see nothing happening, no wrong And it's like, man, can that even be obtained? And so then we get into chapter 5, and it's kind of brought back to reality. Now, I think chapters 1 and 4, 1 through 4, were reality, but it's it's almost as if God's realistic in the scriptures, right? Like, he, he desires perfection for us, right? We should desire perfection. We we should desire to be holy as he is holy, but as we've been studying in Luke, like, there's so much grace for us. We talked about last week on Sunday how, you know, we're to have a faith that never fails, but we know that it can falter at times. You know, and we think, well, man, if, if it falters a little bit, then have I, you know, lost perfection? You know, God has so much grace for us. And I say this because here's this picture of this relationship that looks perfect, but then it's like, no, wait, the honeymoon's over. Right here now, we've actually got to do life together. And what we come to find out is that no single person is perfect, and no single couple has a perfect relationship. Do we understand this? I mean, even in a sense, our relationship with the Lord isn't perfect. But why is that? It's because we're involved in it. It's because we are the other half of that that equation. Now, God is perfect in everything, and he is faithful in all things. Right? It's, It's like when God made the promise with Abraham you know, to, to, to be a father of many nations, and he made that covenant with him, God made that covenant alone. I mean, he had him fall asleep. And so God did it alone because God can never break a promise. God is always faithful, but he knows man isn't. And so we see now in chapter 5 that there's, there's going to be some trouble. There's going to be some issues. So we've gone from like this picture-perfect relationship to now, okay, now this is real life, right? Again, the honeymoon's over. And now we're going to see, okay, how do we deal with this? Because what we come to understand 
is that conflict isn't always a bad thing. What's really important is understanding how to handle and deal with conflict, right? I mean, it's in any relationship that you have, your brothers, your sisters, your mom, your dad, um, the church, people within the church, like you can't have perfect relationships where there's never issues. There will always be an issue that comes up, right? Even the most, you know, picture-perfect couple that you can think of, they have issues, right? Because again, we're sinners, we, we battle against that flesh nature, right? I mean, what does Paul say? That there's, there's, there's two natures that battle against each other in us, and what are those two natures? The flesh and the spirit, right? They're constantly at battle with one another, and we'll talk about this today. So we've got this picture-perfect couple, but here comes issues. How do we deal with those issues? Because they will come. That's really, really, really important. But before we get to that, we finish the consummation here in verse 1 where Solomon speaks to her and says, I have come to my garden. Again, he says here, my sister, my spouse. If you want more details about that, we talked about that last week in our study. He says, I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my, my wine with my milk. Basically, Solomon here is declaring and saying to her, you know, it was good. The marriage is complete. Like he has totally enjoyed his garden. And remember, at the very beginning of verse 16, she referred to it as her garden. By the end of verse 16, she then refers to it as his garden. And here in verse 1 of chapter 5, he again is referring to as his garden. Because that's exactly what Jesus has said. He says it in the New Testament through Paul that, you know, she is yours to treat her as if she, if, if she is you, if she is your body, and vice versa. Right? And that is the best way to protect the husband, to protect the wife, to love the wife, to love the husband, is to love them as if they were yourself. And so he totally enjoys his garden, speaking of her, his bride. And so he's, he's delightful. He says he's gathered the myrrh in a garden. It's as sweet as eating honey. And he's enjoyed drinking the best drinks, just being very descriptive of how wonderful the evening was. And it was all because of her. It was good. And I think that's important to understand. And I'll, I think I'll get to it in a minute. But then he says here, still in verse 1, as he speaks to his friends, he says, Eat, O oh friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O oh beloved ones. Now, my margin, and I think maybe yours does too, if you have the NKJV, maybe some other versions say it as well, where it has the parentheses and it says, To his friends. And obviously he says in the verse, oh, friends, it seems to be as if he's speaking to his buddies, but contextually that'd be weird, right? Like who invites their buddies on the consummation night to come into the bedroom with them? No, that's not the case here, right? So, so understanding that thought process, we can eliminate that this is his actual friends, right? So it's not his friends. What's more likely than that being his friends or the wedding guests or family, whoever it may be, a more plausible suggestion is that the speaker was God himself, right? That the creator would have been a guest on the occasion. That since their love was from him, it was fitting that he approves it. He invited them to enjoy the sexual love in marriage as if it were a banquet, right? To eat and to drink 
And I think what is important about this is that it clearly indicates that God approves these things within marriage because he's designed these things in marriage. Because I think sometimes for us, you know, as young couples who, who you know, they've done things the right way, right? They've done things the right way that as, you know, the, the Shulamite and the beloved have done in chapters one through three. And then they get to their wedding and they get to their wedding night. They've waited for this special occasion, you know, this union with their spouse that sometimes at the very beginning of that relationship, it can be really hard to enjoy the fullness of it. Because I think Satan has tainted the idea of it. He's put um, shame on it, when in actuality, God has, has made it good, and he's designed it to be good. And here, I think we, we get that approval from God that for us as a husband and a wife, that he's designed it to be good and to enjoy, and that it's, he's given us an approval. I hope this makes sense, and maybe it won't make sense until you, know, you get to this point in your life. But a healthy marriage is one that includes fully enjoying the pleasures and intimacy of your spouse. And listen, God, God has not only approved it, but he's also created it. So it's not like he just said, yeah, like, I give you the go-ahead, but no, he, he's the designer of it. So obviously he's the one who would approve it. So then we get into verse 2. In verse 2, we kind of change things up a little bit. You can look at this one of two ways. You can look at it like it actually happened, or you can look at it like it's a dream. There's been a couple of occasions as we've been through the few chapters where it's, it, it could be that. Now, here's the thing. I don't know. I don't know if this is a dream. I don't know if this really happened. But what I do know is I think it really doesn't matter because the, the intentions and the points are still the same. Whether it was real or whether it was a dream, we learn the same thing. So here we get into God being really realistic with, within the scriptures of there's highs and there's lows, right? There's, there's good times, there's bad times, there's mountains and there's valleys. And so he's going to really highlight, you know, the good and the bad within a relationship, within people. So in verse 2, she says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, so the man says, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. So soon into their marriage, and this could even be on the, on the marriage, the wedding night, she either has a dream or this is happening. She says she was sleeping, but her heart was awake, probably indicating that she was in a very deep sleep. All of a sudden, she's, she's awakened because she hears a voice. She hears a knock at the door. For whatever reason, and I think every commentator speculated as to what it could be, and they were all different, so I'm like, nobody knows. <laughs> It's just a speculation, but we do know what, is, what has happened is that he's not in the bed with her. He's not in the room with her, that he has gone outside for some reason, but he is outside. He's outside the door, and he's trying to get back in, so he calls out for her. He says, open for me, but he also knocks, right? He's left the bedroom. He's gone outside, and then the description here at the end of the verse is that his head is covered with dew. He's drenched, right? But he wanted to get back in. And so what he does is he knocks. And I think this is key. Because we're going to see that since the beginning of Song of Solomon, that this man has been a gentleman. And we're going to continue to see that this man will continue to be a gentleman. And as we know that this book is a very 
clear indication or example of Jesus Christ, right? And the bride is a clear indication or example of us as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And so what I want to do in a minute is kind of speculate and segue how that correlates to Jesus Christ, this knocking. But before I get to that, let's look at what he says. He says, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. He calls for her, but the sound of his voice was not enough to persuade her to open the door, but he praises her. He's affectionate. Again, he's speaking good things to her, right? He's complimenting her. He calls her again, my sister, which we talked about last time, how this is one title that will remain with them forever, right? That they are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one title that lasts in eternity. The husband and wife thing, not so much. We're pretty sure that when we get to heaven, that it, it won't matter in a sense. I think we'll remember and we'll be, you know, happy about it. But our union won't really matter so much in heaven. And so again, he, he calls her my sister. He calls her my love, my dove. It just, it, it signifies here the, the faithfulness to her husband for which doves are famous for. He says, my perfect one. I think obviously he knows she's not perfect, but just speaking again of her, her moralness, that she's ethical, that she's blameless, right? That she's without spot, as he said previously in the other chapter. So she's sleeping, he knocks, right? He doesn't bust through the door. I don't know why he doesn't have a key, but I think it's just the time, the culture that they were in. Um, he's knocking, and this is the, the, a clear indication of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. If you guys know that, that section of scripture, it's one of the letters that Jesus writes to one of the churches. And it's the church that, um, oh gosh, now I can't even remember. Turn with me really quick to Revelation chapter 3. Last book. It's the lukewarm church, that's what it was. So Jesus writes to the lukewarm church. And the seven letters are really interesting because the seven letters are written to seven different eras of the church history. They're written to seven distinct churches, but it also even signifies, you know, seven distinct people, individuals, types of people. And so this church specifically was a lukewarm church. You know, they had the appearance that they did good works, um, but Jesus says, you know, you're neither hot nor cold. He says, I could wish you were hot or cold. He says, but you're lukewarm. And he says, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Very descriptive here. Um, which, again, if, if you think of vomiting, um, why does your body throw up? Why, why do we go through that process? It's the worst thing ever. I hate it. But what is your body doing? It's, it's, it's getting rid of, rid of toxins and impurities, right? Some, something in you that shouldn't be in you. So, you know, without your control, your body does it, right? Um, so if you look at the description, you're, you're kind of getting to the point of, okay, if Jesus is purging something from his body, but all throughout Scripture, he's very clear that if you are born again, you are a child of God, you are a part of his body, right? If you are a bride of Christ, you are a part of his body. Well, if you're, he's going to vomit you out of your body, well, then you probably weren't of the body, but you try to display yourself as if you were. I hope this is making sense. 
basically he's saying you're not, you're not of me, right? You're not born again. He says you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You're neither good or good because hot was good and cold was good, but you're bad. Lukewarm was bad. So he vomits him out or her, them, okay? But then he says this in verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And again, this speaks to the gentleness um, and how God is truly a gentleman. You know, like he doesn't force himself upon us. He doesn't force us to do anything because in, in that case, it's not truly love. It's not truly free will. And so what he does is he knocks. Because then that gives you the opportunity to do one of, one of two things. To either ignore it, like we're going to see the woman do in a second, or to go and open the door and let him in. Right? It's, it's all up to you what you want to do. And he says, I will gladly come in and dine with you if you open the door. And, and this, is, this is God's invitation to the unbelievers, to those who have been vomited out, that look, hey, if you want to be a part of the body, if, if you want to be born again, I'm here, I'm waiting, I'm knocking, I'm reminding you like constantly of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. You can have it, but it's up to you to obtain it. It's up to you to place your faith in Jesus Christ, to receive that free gift of salvation through grace, through faith, by grace, through faith. So again, behold, I stand at the door and knock. So a good representation that Solomon has here of Jesus Christ, he's standing at the door, he's knocking, right? He's being patient, he's waiting, he calls out to her. But this is what she says in verse 3. She says, I have taken off my robe, how can I put it on again? I have washed my feet, how can I defile them? Basically, her response to his appeal is she answers with excuses. She's like, man, I'm so comfortable. I literally just got ready for bed. And ladies, like, I, I know how long it takes for you guys to get to bed, like, to get ready for bed. You know, it's like, for me, I just hop right in bed, right? Brush teeth, hop in bed. For ladies, I'm assuming that it probably takes you guys a while. You got to... You got your whole, you know, bedtime routine, just like you have your whole routine to get ready for the day. Um, I'm sure got, some guys have that too. All the guys with perfect hair in here have that. <laughs> but she's like, I, I've done all that. I've washed my feet, right? I, I, I've already taken my robe off. I don't want to put it back on again. So here, here is where now issues start to arise within the relationship. And the ultimate issue really with, with any sin or with any issue in life, I mean, obviously, it's, 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 there's a lot of extensions of it, is our selfishness, right? Our, our pride. And so, you know, she couldn't be bothered to, eat, to inconvenience herself of just getting dressed again, preparing herself for sleep again. She did not want to get up. She had already settled down for the night. And again, she didn't want to go to the door and open it. But up to this point, it seems again that it's been such a perfect relationship, right? It, it, it has seemed unattainable, but here we're going to see this, this honeymoon effect will eventually wear off because now what they come to find out is the honeymoon is over and real life hits you in the face, okay? We got to get up for work. We got to do this. We got to go through that. We have kids. 
this, this, and that. And so we've seen the instructions of, of how to have a good and healthy relationship, right? And now again, we get to the real stuff. It's the other side of relationships. Again, something that I said earlier, that it's unavoidable. And so what we find out is that in relationships, you're, you're always going to be battling selfishness. And that selfishness is going to bring conflict. So you're going to have to learn how to resolve conflict. If you want to stay in a, in a relationship long enough, you have to learn how to resolve conflict. Whatever relationship that is. Whether that's with family, a spouse, even the church. Right? If, if you want to stay at a church for a long time, you're going to have to learn how to resolve conflict. Because there's, conflict is going to arise. Sure, you may go through a season and long spells of, you know, everything's good and great, but then, you know, one day something will come up and somebody's going to be upset, something's going to happen, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, they're going to do this, they're going to do that, you're not going to like something, they're not going to like something, and there's, there's different ways to go about it, but the only good way to go about it is to resolve it, Right? And I think for us as people, when it comes to conflict, the, the easiest thing to do is what? To avoid it. Either pretend like it doesn't, didn't happen or just to run away from it. And what we come to find out, that's not good and that's not healthy. It's not healthy for the relationship and it's not healthy for you. When conflict arises, we have to learn how to resolve it and not run away from it. Now, in a marriage, that's, that's not so easy, right? It's not so easy so much to run away from it because you you or with your spouse. Same thing with family, right? You have conflict with your parents. You can't necessarily run away from it, right? Within the church, I mean, you, you, can't, you can run away from it. You can just go to the church down the street, right? But again, with, with the wife, with the husband, you're going to have to learn how to resolve it. And I'm so thankful that Jesus understands that we're not perfect human beings. We're not perfect disciples, so he gives us instruction in the word of God how to resolve conflict. Because he's like, I love my kids, but I know they're going to argue. I know they're going to bicker. I know stuff's going to come up, right? Same thing with, with my own kids. I, I love them, but I know that stuff's going to happen, and they're going to have to figure out how to get over it, how to get through it, not get over it. So when conflict arises in a relationship, what do you do? Now, first here, what happens when the first argument or disagreement arises, especially within, you know, everything's been so lovey-dovey to this point, and now here's their first argument. And it's like, whoa, like, what do I do? But let's answer this question. First, where do our arguments and conflicts come from? James 4, 1 through 6 says this, gives us the answer. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that your friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Conflicts and disagreements will arise. 
again, the conflict itself is not necessarily bad. It's how you deal with it. And so what we come to realize through James is that these conflicts and disagreements arise from our own selfishness. The reason she doesn't answer the door, even though she's completely in love with this man, the reason she doesn't get to the door soon enough is because of selfishness. And it's something that we all have to battle through. It's something that we all have to grow and mature through. It's all for all of us, whether in a relationship or not, we have to learn to put off and to put on something else. And Paul's going to tell us what that is in a minute. But James goes on to say this in chapter 3, in verses 16 through 18. He says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And you're probably wondering at some points in your life, like, why are my relationships not working out? Well, if you're being envious and you're being selfish, well, it's not going to be good. He says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You want to have good and healthy relationships? Well, put off the envy, put off the self-seeking, seek the wisdom that's from above. And he says these, these fruits, they'll grow, they'll mature, these things that make peace. And so conflict resolution, to deal with these things, it begins with the right heart, and it begins with our desire to walk in the Spirit. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24 that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the, deceit, the, the deceitful lusts, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I bring up that verse because the point is this. You've got to put off the old man, and you've got to put on the new man. You've got to put off the old nature, and you've got to put on the new nature. There's two natures. There's two dogs that are fighting in you. You've got the old man. You've got the old nature. You got the, 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 the flesh versus the new man, the new nature, and the spirit. And when we abide in Christ, we're abiding in the spirit. We're, we're feeding that. We're growing in that. That is winning the war that is waged within you. But if you start to put on the, the old things, the things that aren't of God, the, the selfish and, and fleshly nature, well, that's going to start, that's going to be how you're going to start to operate. That's what's going to grow. That's what's going to develop in you. And ultimately, listen, guys, it's going to hurt you, but it's going to hurt the relationships around you. Because the selfish nature is not a healthy, healthy thing to have healthy relationships. So again, put off the old nature, put on the new nature. And Paul says this in Colossians. He says in verse 8 through 15 in chapter 3, he says, Now put, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, okay? These are probably obviously bad things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And he goes on to say, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, do this. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on what? What's the most important thing to put on? Love. Love. It's like putting your underwear on. 
It's the most important thing. Even as Christ forgave you, no, sorry, put on uh, love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Now imagine, listen, do you want a future spouse? Let's look at it two ways. Do you want friends this way or a future spouse this way? Let me read this to you. Would you like for them to be angry at you? To show their wrath all the time? To have malice? To blaspheme? To have filthy language? To constantly be lying to you? Wouldn't that be a great friend or a great spouse? No. Obviously not. So you're not looking for that in a spouse. So your future spouse should not find that in you. And not only that, but for we as followers of Jesus, those, that's not his nature. So that shouldn't be found in us. We should, again, be putting these things off. But you want to find this in your friends. You want to be this for your friends, for your spouse. To put on tender mercies, right? To be kind, to be humble, to be meek, to be long-suffering, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, right? To love one another. Isn't that, aren't those good things and good qualities within a healthy friendship, a healthy relationship? So, we see the selfishness, right? That's, that's the root of it, but you've got to fight it. You've got to put it off, and you have to abide in Christ. Because the more we abide in Christ and we walk in the Spirit, well, then the fruits are going to develop, and those things are what's going to come out and in, 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 uh, be in our relationships. So, in verse 4, this is what she says after she gives excuses of why she doesn't want to get out of bed. She says, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. The KJV says, My beloved put, his, put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. Basically, just speaking of the feelings that have stirred up. right? It's like, it's like okay, I'm, I'm being reminded of, I do love this man. He is good. I need to be less self-centered and more focused on him. And it says in verse 5 that she arose. She says, I arose to open for my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, liquid myrrh on the hands, handles of the lock. And basically a commentator says this, that he leaves a love note for her and then went away. It was in their culture, it was a sign that a, a lover would leave this fragrant myrrh at the door as a sign that he had been there. So he leaves this there. She finds it there. She opens the door. But what she's going to find out in verse 6 is that he's not there. So in verse 6, she says, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. She got up, she opened the door, but it was a little bit too late. He left. He left. And so she says she called for him. What did he answer? Now here the roles are reversed, where once he called for her, and he heard no response, and now she calls for him, and she too hears no response. She was a little too late. I think this is, again, an example within relationships or even within marriage of just, you know, even sometimes emotionally how, how things can play out. So we see at the beginning here that, you know, she had some type of excuse, selfishness, maybe resentment towards her beloved of why she didn't want to get up. She, he, as the man, refused to force himself upon her, 
but he waited for an invitation, right? That's what the knocking here symbolizes. The beloved made a true and persistent appeal to his maid. He calls out, he knocks, right? That, they, that he would, she would open the door and they can enjoy their relationship together. But because of her selfishness, right, she, she delayed her response. And then when finally she did respond, it was too late. The moment was gone. You know, and that's, it's an interesting thought because especially within a marriage, sometimes it feels like you're not on the same page. And that's, I think that's just life. It's not like, again, the perfect marriage out there doesn't have a perfect record of always being on the same page. You're going to have to figure out how to get on the same page. And so when these conflicts come up, again, you have to figure out how to resolve these things. Because emotionally, it can stir up these things of, you know, I called for her, she didn't answer. Right? I initiated this, but she doesn't respond to it. Well, that hurts my feelings. Now I'm going to pull away. And now, again, now on her side of it, she was like, I don't want to get up. It's the middle of the night. I've done all these things. And she starts to maybe have some resentment. And then finally, she, she changes her mind. She's like, no, I love this guy. I'm going to get up. And she's excited to open the door, and then he's not there. And now she's, you know, again, hitting rock bottom where, like, I, I just got myself to be excited, and now I'm bummed out. Right? So sometimes in, in life or in this walk of relationship with a spouse, there's those ups and downs. There's those, you know, not being in sequence together. But we've got to learn how to, again, to resolve these things. And so that means putting on the things that, that God has given us and called us to be as disciples, which is to be, you know, merciful, to be long-suffering, to be gracious, to forgive one another, to put on love. Right? Again, you're going to have to figure out how to resolve these conflicts. And I'll just throw this in there. The best way one of the most practical, applicable things that you can do to help resolve a conflict is communication, is good communication. I'm just going to throw that in there. Good communication, whether that's friendship, spouse, whatever it may be, good communication. So, he's not there. Verse 7, she, some, she leaves. And remember, previously, I forget what chapter it was, we saw the same thing where she went and she found the watchman right? Because she was looking for Solomon again. Now she's looking for him again. And it says, the watchman who went about the city found me, but they struck me and they wounded me. The keepers of the wall, they took my veil away from me. So now things are getting worse, right? She's searching for him. And now she comes upon the watchman who, in a sense, are to protect her. But here we find out that she was probably covered with a shawl or a veil, as she says in verse 7. So maybe they didn't recognize her, Maybe he thought she was a thief prowling around, sneaking around. Maybe a spy from an, another kingdom, which we're going to see in chapter 6. So they struck her, they injured her, and they took away her veil. So here she's gone from, you know, missing her husband, being sad about it, now looking for him, and now being hurt in the process of it. And I think what this is speaking to is that this situation or dream, if it's a dream, whatever it may be, it symbolizes the pain of separation brought about through her own selfishness. But she's got to learn to resolve it. And so if you, if you want to bring selfishness into your relationship, it's going to bring some type of pain, some type of hurt, and it may be because of separation. So he's, he's away from her at this moment. She's looking for him. So she says in verse 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved... 
that you tell him, I am lovesick. So she makes a plea here as she speaks to the daughters of Jerusalem. Remember, we've kind of thought of them as, as a little bit of like a, a narrator to all of this. And so she regrets what she's done, but she has to, you know, deal with, with the consequences of her actions. So she says she's lovesick, right? It's not in the same sense in, in chapter 2, verse 5, where she said she was lovesick, because in that sense, she was lovesick because of the presence of love, but now she's lovesick because of the absence of love. He's not there. So the response in verse 9 is this. They say to her, What is your beloved more than another beloved? O fairest among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? They said, What's so special about him? Why is he so special to you? They wanted basically an explanation of why she was so lovesick. They want to know why she admires him so. And so, as we've read through these first five chapters, we've seen Solomon be very, very descriptive and have this lovey-dovey type of language in describing her. But now it's going to be, we're going to flip the script and she's now going to describe and she's going to answer the question to them of, why, you know, why, who is he to her? You know, why is he more important than others? Again, this is a question to her and specific to her. And so just as Solomon in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, describes her from head to, to toe, from top to bottom of her appearance, she's going to do the same thing for him. And I think what she, her answer is going to display that he's important to her, that she's, he's special to her, right? And that she's going to convince them about the wonder of him. So verse 10, this is her description. She says, My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. So again, she starts with, with a description of physical features. Solomon did the same thing. He flowed into some uh, character features as well. But here she's enraptured by his looks, his complexion. She speaks of him as being ruddy, which was just like his father. If you remember the description of David, he was ruddy as well. That's in 1 Samuel 16. But then she's also speaking of of his character. And I think as she says this, chief among 10,000, I think what she's doing is she's comparing him to 10,000 other men. So in a physical sense, he's the most attractive of them all. But in, in a character sense, what she's doing is she's describing the greatness of him, that he's the chief among 10,000. So she's describing, I, I believe, his, his physical, but also his character, his accomplishments. But she continues with the physical in verse 11. She says, his head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. So what color is his hair? Black, right? And it's wavy. Verse 12, his eyes are like doves. Again, she, he said the same thing about her. I don't know what was so special about dove's eyes. Again, I haven't looked one in the eye. But the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. And I'm not going to break all these down because I don't fully understand what they mean. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. Basically, what we can all agree is that she was into him. Right? I mean... However, how they want to describe it is their way. How we, we would want to describe it is our way. The point being is that he, he was hers and she was his. 
right? My beloved is mine, and I am his. She says his hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory, so he was ripped, inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble. He never skipped leg day. <laughs> set on bases of fine gold. Now, if we were to describe men today, it'd be like, his legs were twigs and... His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. So she answers the question. And I think, you know, sometimes you don't know what you have until it's gone. Solomon wasn't gone. He didn't leave the relationship. But here we just get the picture that sometimes you just need to you just need a fresh remembrance of, man, I need to stop looking at all the bad stuff. I need to look at the good stuff. I need to be reminded. I just need to be reminded sometimes, right, that he is altogether lovely. That's how she sums it up in this, this general phrase here, right, that he is altogether lovely. You know, and sometimes we have to face the consequences of our selfishness, but nothing is beyond repair. With Christ, let me put it that way, nothing is beyond repair. Because if Christ can forgive us and Christ can redeem us, I mean, he can do anything within any relationship. But the point being is that conflict's going to arise, but how do we handle it? How do we deal with it? You know, do we, do we go about it in selfishness and anger and pride? Or do we humble ourselves in, in, with gentleness and meekness and love and compassion? One commentator says this, he says, The bride replies by describing him in all the wealth of imagery. Yet any other woman might have used every figure in describing her beloved. It's true. Anyone could have described him that way just by looking at him. But at last, and as I think half unconsciously, the truth is out as she says this. She says, this is my beloved and this is my friend. No one else could say that. Right? No one else could say that. And the same with Christ and us. We are his and he is ours. No one can take that away from us. And it's the most intimate thing that we can have. And, and you might think it's less intimate because he has that same relationship with millions of other people, but God is so great and so grand that he's not pulled away by all those other intimate relationships. It's always one-on-one between us. He is my beloved and I am his. This is my beloved and this is my friend. So she describes his, his characteristics, his features, right? Admiring him, verses 10 through 6, right? She's, in a sense, rediscovering her love for him as, as she answers this question of, you know, why is he so great? And then as she starts to ramble on, she's like, oh man, he really is great. I just need to be reminded of that. I need to remind myself of that. But one thing we find out, too, is that she does not complain to him. Oh, no, she doesn't complain to anyone about him. That's key. Because oftentimes we can go to others and complain like this and that, whatever it may be. But a good and healthy relationship and marriage doesn't take things out of the, outside the marriage. The conflict needs to be resolved between the two. As Pastor Kevin said at our marriage ministry on Sunday night, no one else is allowed in that bedroom. No one else. Not mom, not dad, not best friend, not pastor, not podcaster. No one. 
It's between you and your wife. So to complain to others is to, to invite them into the intimate bedroom where they're not allowed to be. And Paul says this in Philippians. He says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Then he says this in Ephesians. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Speak good things. Don't gossip. Don't complain. Because it will always come back to bite you. Always. It's never come back and been a good thing. I've never gossiped and it's come back and it's been a blessing to me. Like, man, I'm so glad I did that. No, it, it never does. It hurts you and then it hurts others. So here she concludes, and we'll close here. As we think of, you know, why were you so slow to get up? If you were just a little bit faster. Why were you so slow in responding to his call? How could you risk losing him, the one that you love, the one that you call lovely, altogether lovely, is her description here in verse 16. But she was brought back to a fresh appreciation of the one whom she loved. She was brought back to that. And I think she was all the more sorrowful for her prior selfish response. But again, we learn, we grow. You make mistakes. You get picked back up. We talked about that on Sunday. The righteous fall seven times, but they get back up. God is graceful. And I'm sure Solomon's going to be graceful and forgiving. And it's only going to bring them closer. But you have to come to the realization of your sin sometimes and repent of it and turn from it. And there you get a fresh perspective and you see things the right way. Because sin will always skew how you see things. Always. It actually makes you stupid. <laughs> like, and I can say that from experience. That I look back and I think, why, how did I even think that? And it was because I was deceived. That's what sin does. It makes you see things the wrong way.